Okay, so uh, many Christians uh, refer to this Sunday as Advent Sunday. It's uh, not something that we find mentioned anywhere in the Bible, but it is a tradition that is believed to go back to around the 4th century. And since the Middle Ages, so a little bit later than when it first started, it's been a time when Christians have traditionally thought about the Lord Jesus coming into the world, the, uh, the traditional Christmas story that we're going to be uh, thinking a lot about in the, uh, in the coming weeks. The word Advent itself uh, comes from the Latin Adventus, uh, which means coming. And interestingly, before the Middle Ages, it wasn't the first coming of Christ that was um, associated with Advent. The Christians actually were thinking more about his future coming, his second, his second coming. But I think the two key verses that we have suggested for our, our subject today that you might have seen in the programme, I think that both those verses um, are relevant to both those tremendous um, events, the first and second coming of our Lord Jesus. So we've moved on um, in our programme from our, our study of Exodus, and for the next week we are going to be thinking about the Lord Jesus coming into the world as our saviour. This week we're going to be thinking about him as the one who was sent. Next week we're going to be thinking about the God who became human. And both these aspects are, are absolutely vital to the hope that we have as Christians today. So let's read the first of the two verses um, that we're going to be um, putting our thoughts around, and that's Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. I'm only going to read the first half of the verse, because um, that's the, the bit that, for me, is um, most relevant to what I'd like to say. But we are going to be coming back to this um, passage a little bit later because there is more about the context of this verse that I think uh, I'd like to share with you. But Galatians 4, verse 4, says, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his Son. Well, that's it. A few words. A lot in them. We know the phrase, don't we? Um, with the benefit of hindsight. And um, a similar phrase, it's easy to be wise after the event. Uh, two sayings which make a very obvious point, that after something has happened, it's much, much easier to um, look back on it and understand it than it is to try and look forward to events that have not yet, um, not yet happened. After the event, um, assuming that we've... Um, experienced it for ourselves or we've seen the evidence of it in a, in a, in a, in a TV news report maybe, um, we can know with reasonable certainty that the event happened and also the detail of the event, we can know exactly what went on. Compare that with what we know about an event before it's happened. It's often the case that we don't know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how we're going to react to it when it does happen, or even, in some cases, if it's going to happen. Put yourselves in the shoes of the Jewish people in the days before Christ. There was a general expectation that God would somehow 
save his people. And that they were waiting for someone that they regarded as the Messiah, that they referred to as the Messiah, that this, that this person was going to come. But without the benefit of hindsight, to most people, the, 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 the prophecies were vague. Some of them still are, even with the benefit of hindsight. The prophecies were vague. And, 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 and really, they had no idea or very little idea of um, who and how and when the Messiah would come, or, or, or what he would do when he arrived. Remember the Lord Jesus talking to the two on the road to Emmaus, when they pretty much declared the, the extent to which they understood um, what the Messiah was going to do. He, he, we thought he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel, whatever that was meant to mean. You know, so they really had very little idea about what the Messiah um, was going to do. And the prophecies went back for more than a thousand years from that time. So there must have been a lot of people during that time, especially towards the end of it, who really were wondering and maybe doubting if the Messiah would ever come. Especially given the situation that they, they were then in um, towards the end of that period. The once proud Israel. The, the nation that God had rescued so powerfully from, from Egypt, like we've been thinking in our studies recently. The nation that, that conquered the promised land. We're now back in captivity and under the rule of um, Caesar and, uh, and, uh, and, and Rome. Why did God wait so long before he sent his son? Why didn't he make it more clear about what he was going to do and, and, and when? We can only speculate about the whys, about God's motives in, in all of that. But with the benefit of hindsight, we don't need to speculate about the what and the when. We know what happened, don't we, approximately 2,000 years ago. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son. Let's think a little bit more about those, those words, when the set time had fully come. Firstly, we just have to recognise that this was God's timing. Um, unlike us, in our day-to-day -day lives, um, often, he wasn't working to anybody else's timetable. It was God's timing. He is the sovereign God. The Almighty, the, 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 the creator of all things who, 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 who answers to no one. And he's also timeless, without beginning or end. He's eternal. But he uses time, he uses time to set out his plans. Everything that he does has a set time. As it says in Acts chapter 17, from one man he made all the nations and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. So God's plans and timings have, have a global reach and also always a very specific purpose. But we also have to keep in mind that God only reveals to us what he wants to tell us. And the, the history of God dealing with human beings is that he has gradually, over time, 
revealed more and more about himself and his plans to us, but he still hasn't revealed everything. As Jesus said, um, we have that quotation in, in Acts chapter 1, um, Luke recalls that Jesus said that it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Now you notice in Galatians 4 that it doesn't just say when the set time had come. It says when the set time had fully come. Now the, the meaning of that Greek word um, just confirms what you might expect it to mean. There's no sort of clever, oh, com something completely different. It, it means exactly what we might, might think it means. It's always worth looking up a Greek word and the, trans the meaning of it, see if there is something uh, special hidden in there. Um, but actually, that word fully, it, 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 it does, it, it means a lot. It means completeness, it means the full extent. Compare it with the word almost or nearly. Um, we might have said this morning, um, is it time to leave for church? And if it was approximately the time that we normally leave for church, we might have said, yes, near enough, time to, um, time to go. But God is much more precise than that. He sets an exact time. And he's, he's never early. And he's never, he's never late. He acts at the precise set time. Now, of course, we might think he's early or, or late. That's probably more our, our more common complaint, if we might call it a complaint, our reverent um, query. Um, when we don't see God working in our lives or answering our prayers at a time that, 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 that suits our, our times table. And um, I'm not going to trivialise that or say that that in some way should be something that we can easily deal with. Because just like the people who cried out to God before Jesus came, and just like the people who've no doubt cried out to God over the last 2,000 years... There may be times when we cry out to God, when we pray to God in, in complete desperation. Times of great sadness or anxiety or uncertainty or, or even suffering. Or we might really want to know God's will about big decisions in our lives or, or, or difficulties that we're struggling to cope with. There may be times when we when we really want his intervention, or at the very least we want his guidance, and there's nothing. Does he not hear us? Does he, does he not care? Well, of course, we're reassured from many scriptures in the Bible that he does hear us, and he really does care. He more than just cares. But just as God waited for every detail of his plan to come together before he sent his son, so the meticulous detail of his plans today sometimes preclude him from responding, responding to our requests for doing things in our, in our timescales, or even in his divine wisdom as he helps us to mature as Christians, there may be times when he stays silent deliberately because he wants us to learn trust learn reliance to wait patiently or, or even to use the answers that he's already given to us in his words 
As I said before, we can only speculate about the reasons why God does what he does or sometimes doesn't appear to do anything at all. But we can be sure that when every detail of his plan comes together, then he will take action. And we can see that in the verse that we read. Remember, the Lord himself longs for the fulfilment of the ages. He longs for the joy that was set before him when he hung on the cross. He desires to save human beings. He's looking forward to the new heaven and the new earth. If there was ever someone who understood all of that and hastened, wanted to hasten the whole thing moving forward, it would be, it would be God. And yet, despite all that being God's plan from the very beginning, and his desire since before the creation of the earth, he waits patiently. And it was only when the time had fully come that he was able to send his son into the world to save us. Let's leave Galatians 4 for a moment and go across to 1 John chapter 4. It's going to read... Um, one verse. So John writes, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. We've been thinking about God sending Jesus at just the right time, but here John is also referring to Jesus being sent, and he goes on to talk about the reason why he was sent to be. The saviour of the world. Now actually, in fairness to Paul, Paul also talks about the reason why Jesus was sent in the verses around the one we read in Galatians, and we will be going back there, but John writes and uses this phrase, the saviour of the world. <coughs> the language, I think, is interesting, um, and maybe it's because the gospel is so amazing and almost unbelievable and too good to be true, um, that John seems to be compelled to, to write we have seen, and in the language of the courtroom, testify, we have seen and testify that. And it reminds me of the only other place in the Bible where we find that same phrase, saviour of the world. It's only in two places in the whole of the Bible. The word saviour is in lots of places, but the phrase saviour of the world, we only find it here and in one other place. And that was when Jesus met that woman at Syke as well, and she brought her friends and neighbours to come and meet Jesus. What did, what did they say? Let me just nip back to John chapter 4. <coughs> they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Let's remind us, um, ourselves what we mean when we refer to Jesus being the saviour. Who does he save um, and, and from what and how can we be included in the scope of that salvation? I think these questions have, have, have often been um, answered with reference to the three P's. And I know that Steve was um, covering this not that long ago in one of the talks that he gave. So I hope you don't mind me um, covering similar, um, similar ground. But I just found the three Ps are just such a nice, succinct way of 
um, summarising quite a lot of what's important about our salvation. And it starts off with the penalty. The first P is the penalty of sin. We are saved from the penalty of sin. As rebellious sinners, we were under condemnation, weren't we? Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. Now sometimes people ask why that really was necessary. You know, if God really loves us, like the Bible says that he does, and um, if um, God is the God who creates all the rules in the first place, who determines what's right and wrong, why can't he just be a bit more tolerant? Or uh, a bit more, more lenient when it comes to sin? Why this penalty? Now, there are two ways we can answer that. There's the long way, and we could enjoy a very big study about God's holiness and his righteousness and his justice and how he can't, he, he can't abide sin. It's the thing that separates us from God forever. It's, uh, it's, it, there, is, there is absolutely no way that sin and God can combine. We, we, could, we could explore all of that, and that, that could keep us busy for, for, for the whole of next, next year, David, if you want to put that into the, into the programme. Or, or we could answer it another way, which I think is a bit more simple. And that's by looking at the great lengths that God went to to allow us to avoid the penalty. The price that he was willing to pay so that we could avoid the penalty. You know, we might put that under the heading of if God knew another way, an easier way, a way that was just something like, oh, well, I'll just turn a blind eye. Do we not think that God would have taken that rather than see the death of his own son? So whatever we understand or don't understand about the reason why God was so um, insisting on a penalty being paid, we just look to what the Lord Jesus did on the cross and the need for that to recognise. We might not understand it, but clearly it must have been so. So, um, John chapter 3, verse 16, the popular verse that um, always gets quoted. It's a shame that we so often just stop at verse 16, because the verses that follow just continue to expand on that same truth. So let me just read three verses from John chapter 3, which, make, which are very much about the penalty and the salvation from the penalty. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. We can be saved from the penalty of sin if we believe on the Lord Jesus. If we believe that he is the Son of God, that he died on the cross to bear the penalty instead of us. As it says in Galatians 1 and 4, he gave himself for our sins. And Isaiah 53 verse 5, that Gid quoted this morning, the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. So, we need to be very clear on this when God sent his son into the world that's what he came to do he didn't come to just live a good life and give an example of how we should all be getting on with each other a little bit better 
This is what he came to do. It was always his purpose to die on the cross in your place and mine to deal with the penalty of sin. So we can be saved from the penalty of sin and we can also be saved from the power of sin. And that's something we can experience in our daily lives now, isn't it? As Christians, we should always have the desire to live good lives and do the things that God, God wants us to do, the things that please the Lord. And he's given us the Holy Spirit living in us from the moment we got saved to help us, to help us to do that. But we can't avoid sin, can we? We can't avoid sin. The New Testament makes it absolutely clear that continued sin, even for Christians, is inevitable. And resisting the temptation to sin is an ongoing battle, a, a conflict for the whole of our, our, our lives. But if our faith is genuine, and if we, we use the help that God wants to give us through his word and through the Holy Spirit, then we will not let sin have mastery over us. Sin will not be our master. It won't take control of our lives. And because Christ has paid the penalty of sin, all sin, past, present and future, then when we sin, we never endanger our salvation. We can never lose that. We are new creations in Christ. We can never lose it says in Romans 8 and 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for me, that's the real power of salvation, that nothing can separate us. Nothing can separate us from Christ. No sin can um, break the bond, no matter how big a sin, no matter how bad a sin we might think it is, nothing can break the bond that's created between us and Christ when we accept him as our saviour. He saves us from the power of sin. And thirdly, we will be saved also from the presence of sin. And we'll look into the future here, aren't we? Um, when we'll no longer have to enjoy, endure this inner conflict uh, with sin. And there'll be no more failures and no more temptations and no more need to confess daily to the Lord and tell him how sorry we are for the things that we've messed up about again. And there'll be nothing to prevent us from fulfilling the potential everything that God wants us to be, everything that God designed us to be. We can be all of that when we reach um, that future place. And we won't be affected by all the sin around us either, all of the, the, the horrible things that we see around us in our own neighbourhoods, in our own families, and in our own life, and, and on, the tea and the, uh, on, on the TV and on the wider, the, 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 the wider global um, scene. All the sin that just is there before us all the time, there'll be none of that. So that will be the completion of our salvation when we're saved from the presence of sin. I like those three Ps because they do give us a nice little summary to hang quite a lot of what we believe in on. But it's only a summary. And it's only, um, it's not just a summary, it's only an introduction really to the many, many blessings that God wants us to have. There's a lot more to it. And one aspect of that is back in Galatians 4. You know, I said that, I, 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 that uh, Paul was talking about the reason um, for our salvation here, the reason why Jesus was sent. So let's just go back to Galatians 4. 
I should say that this is a bit of a bridging text because, and I'm not going to go into this, but there's quite a lot about in Galatians 4 and the previous chapter that is very much about God's people, ancient people, the Jews. And he's using that to help make his, his points about the Jews' relationship with the Old Testament law and, and everything that means. But he was writing to Gentiles. So what, what he was saying, and what I'm going to say now applies to us, it's not that we, we shouldn't understand it only in, um, in, 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 in a Jewish um, context. So let me just read again from verse 4, but this time I'll go down to verse 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Now bear with me on this. We have two cats. And sometimes they break stuff. And they recently dropped a, a plate on our lovely piano. And believe me, they were in a lot of trouble. Um, especially as neither of them would admit which one of them had, 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 had done it as well, which was extremely annoying. But, um, but we love our cats. And um, after they showed us that they were sorry, that's what we chose to believe anyway, um, that, 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 that they, they were forgiven and they were no longer at risk of strangulation. <laughs> now, um, they're just cats. And they were cats under condemnation before, and they were forgiven cats afterwards. But we know that they're still, they're still, just, they're still just cats, and they'll always be cats. When God saves us, we become more than just forgiven sinners. We become children of God. We become something that we were never before. We become sons and daughters of God. Now actually, I shouldn't say daughters there, because the significance of this passage in the original context is all about sonship. <clears throat> and the translators are right when they don't insert the word daughters just to make this gender uh, inclusive. It is gender inclusive, but they don't insert um, the word daughters. So what, what was Paul talking about? And why shouldn't we insert the word daughters here? Well, Paul is using the language um, of the culture of the day when daughters had a much lower rank than sons in, in, in the family. And if Paul had referred to sons and daughters that maybe um, some people might have assumed that there was a similar inequality in the blessings that we get from the Lord as um, Christians. But as we know from scripture, in Christ, male and female, we are all one, aren't we? We are all of equal standing uh, before God. And therefore, as far as the rights and benefits that we have as God's children... We are all, male and female, adopted sons. We all have the benefits and the rights of sonship 
Um, it's one of the tremendous blessings that God gives to us. Now, the term adoption is used, and that's interesting because it's not a concept in the, in the Old Testament at all. There are a couple of hints of it here and there, but it's not part of the Jewish law, um, any legal process leading, leading to adoption. But just like today, in Greek and Roman law, there was a process whereby uh, someone could become as much a child of their adopted parents as if they were a, bi um, a biological child. And the Gentile Galatians that Paul was writing to would have understood that, which is why I assume he's used this um, phrase, adoption. And because it conveys something that it would have taken a lot more words to convey if he tried to say it um, in, 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 a different, in, in a different way. So what's Paul saying? What he's saying is that when we get saved, we become God's children. But associated with that, God gives us the, the equivalent rights that a son in, in ancient Israel would have, would have enjoyed. And it's about status, and it's about privilege, and it's about an inheritance. You know, I mean, for ex an example of the inequality, the daughters had no inheritance. In fact, under, their, under, under the law, that if there was um, a son and some daughters, and the son died and the daughters were left, the inheritance still wouldn't go to the daughters, it would go to the children of the son who had died. So the, the daughters really were excluded, but not, not in the benefits that we get. When we, in the adoption to sonship that we enjoy, we have an inheritance, an inheritance forevermore. You are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We're not just talking about becoming God's children in some sort of distant way, are we? In, in a similar way, perhaps, to the way the Jews referred to Abraham being, being their father. It's a close family relationship. And, and that's what we see in verse 6, that lovely little expression often quoted God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, um, Father. It's often been said, it's, a, it's an expression which really means daddy. But we do need to remember that the, in the Jewish family, the child would refer to its father as daddy, but still with all the reverence and respect and honour that was demanded um, in, in, in the family at that time. So it, well, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a frivolous expression, but it is very much a picture of the intimacy that we have with our Heavenly Father. And when Paul speaks of us being heirs, he doesn't just mean that we get a few crumbs from the divine table. Uh, in Romans 8 and 17, it says that we are co-heirs with Christ. We share in the inheritance with Christ. And what's he going to inherit? Hebrews 1 and 2 says he, everything. He is heir of all things. That's what you and I are going to share in one day. Now let me just go back briefly, and I'm nearly done, um, to the fullness of God's timing. The set point when all his plans uh, come together. Because there is another verse um, where that word fully in the original language is used. And that's in Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm just going to read just a couple of verses um, from verse 7. Um, I knew I wouldn't have time for this, but uh, Ephesians 1 is an absolutely awesome passage uh, in, the, in, in the density of amazing things that it talks about. 
But it says um, from verse 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ, when the times reach their fulfilment. So here we're looking to the future, the, the fullness of time, when, when all God's plans for all eternity come together. And it's something that we should be looking forward to, isn't it? I said at the beginning that an earlier use of the word of, of, of the season of Advent was actually to focus on the future return of the Lord Jesus, not, not, not his, his first coming. And that's an essential part of the gospel, isn't it? God didn't save us so we could spend a lifetime of going to church and doing good works. Only. Paul said, if that's all there is to it, 1 Corinthians 15, then we should be pitied. What losers, uh, to paraphrase. That's not what God sent us, uh, saved us for. God does have plans for our lives on earth right now. And it does involve coming to church and doing, doing good works and many other things besides. But he has more plans for the future in the fullness of time when, as I said before, we will be saved from the presence of sin forever. And just like many Jews, probably, I think, doubted if God would ever send the Messiah. So some of the early Christians were starting to doubt that God uh, would ever send the Lord Jesus back, that the Lord Jesus would, would ever return. Um, and likewise today, 2,000 years later, we have a similar challenge to our faith, don't we? Perhaps an even greater challenge because even more time has gone, has gone by. Can we really believe that Jesus is coming back? Well, that's the question that Peter um, answered in um, 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter said, Above all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Verse 8, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that's Peter's declaration. It's still something that we need to take by, on trust. It's a good case, Peter, but can we trust it? Can we trust that argument? Well, yes, we can. Because if you remember from our studies of the Exodus, and this is where the whole way that God works with human beings is, is, is a continual story from start to finish. He hasn't changed the way that he operates. When we were looking at the book of Exodus, we remembered that when the Israelites arrived at the mountain, God reminded them of how he had rescued them from Egypt and brought them through the desert, right back and the Red Sea, and um, through the desert, and right to that mountain that God had first met, um, met Moses at when he appeared to him in the, in the burning bush. 
God asks the people to look back at what he'd already done to give them the confidence about what he would do in the future. We can look back at the evidence of scripture. We can look back at the things which have been recorded to us, which have been verified as, as things which have really happened in history and know that God always keeps his promises. As I said earlier, the Apostle John wanted to make it clear that he was testifying about evidence that he had seen. So with the benefit of hindsight, we can see how the Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the first coming of the Lord Jesus. And therefore we can be confident, can't we, that all the prophecies about his second coming, that they also will be fulfilled. So as we count down to Christmas, let's use the idea of Advent to focus not only on the first coming, the baby in the manger, but on why he came to be the saviour of the world. And, and, and with that, that in mind, let's look forward to the day when all those who have accepted that salvation will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and to be with him forever. First Thessalonians 4, you know the verse as well. Let's, uh, let's have a closing prayer.